We're going to be looking at another story of, uh, of our guy, Elisha. We've moved on from Elijah to Elisha, and then uh, we're going to kind of use this story that we're in today in 2 Kings chapter 6 to summarize the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, to kind of uh, summarize everything that we've been talking about since February, whenever we... Uh, Whenever we kicked this series off, and this is, this is going to be the last message in this series as we look at these two prophets and kind of what goes on in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. This is going to be uh, kind of where we, where we bring it to, to a close, and I'll use these, this story as kind of a, um, the, the, the paradigm that, that Elijah and Elisha operate under that we can then learn from and grow from. And I'll be honest, I don't think I can have a better story than this one to kind of set us up uh, for the, the, the days ahead and to kind of summarize what we've seen from these two uh, prophets. Last week we saw the story of Naaman and how Naaman uh, essentially, or, or, and how Elijah essentially told Naaman, go jump in a river. And Naaman said, well, that seems offensive. Why would I do that? And uh, he, he, he doesn't want to do it, but eventually he does. And uh, once he got into the, uh, the river, he is healed. But before Naaman got in the river, uh, it was just a nasty, small, unimpressive river. But once he did, as Elisha commanded, he had a whole new appreciation for what God could do with what seemed to be an unimpressive uh, river there for, the, for Jordan. In today's story, what we're going to see is another example of a person who doesn't quite have the right perspective. Another story of a guy who doesn't quite... Uh, fully understand what's going on and whose ability to understand what's possible is limited by a lack of ability to see what's really there. That'll all make sense here in just a, just a few minutes. This, this, uh, this Christmas, Emily and I decided to, uh, to splurge and get a gift, and uh, I'll, I'll get this out. This is not the lar- world's largest Bible case, by the way. That's not what's in here. Um, we, we decided to splurge and get what we thought was going to be a family uh, Christmas present. That was the idea. It was supposed to be a family Christmas present, uh, and it was. The whole family has used this thing, but as it's turned out, uh, I've actually probably used it more than anybody because I think this thing is super cool. Um, so we, we got this thing for Christmas, uh, and this is a VR headset. So some of you guys know exactly what this is, and some of you guys are like, what is that weird contraption, and how does that thing uh, work? So we, we got this thing, uh, and uh, w- w- what it does is it, it will take you to a whole new place uh, in, in really just uh, an instant. You, you put this thing on your face. Here's, here's how this works. So like, you take this thing. I don't think I can do it with my mic, but it goes like on your face. And when it goes on your face, you can see nothing else, like nothing else around you. And then you, depending on what the program is that you have, whenever you have this thing on your face, you see all around you as if you're standing on Mount Everest, as if you're standing on the top of a mountain, you're standing in Times Square, you're standing on the Great Wall of China, and everywhere you look, up, down, all around 360, it's like you're there. And the longer that thing stays on your head, the more you feel like that's where you're really at. And you kind of lose all sense of space and time, kind of lose where you're at, and the outside world kind of disappears and the world inside this headset is what starts to feel kind of uh, real. And then whenever you accompany that feeling with some games and some interactive elements that you can, uh, that you can get, then w- what happens is things can get a little dicey. 
things can get a little bit crazy. I've got a video to show you that'll give you an idea of what's uh, what's going on here. So. Jump, jump. Wait till you see the. No, 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 no. So here's the thing. There, you can get in a YouTube rabbit hole on these things, and you can go for hours watching these things. Uh, there is a, uh, there's all kinds of these. And you've got to remember in this video, these people have got this headset on. And so we see what they're doing and the ridiculousness of what they're doing, how they can't just take a step this far without falling. But they can't do that because their reality has changed. Everything else around them is is different. And so while uh, this video may give you the idea that, that, that VR is like super dangerous, it's mostly safe. So long as you can remember you're standing on solid ground, a lot of those games are, are games where you're supposed to be walking on this plank off the edge of a skyscraper and you just kind of forget what, what's going on. There's videos of people just crashing into these massive TVs. Uh, Abby has actually uh, a time or two been playing a game and I've tried to sneak by her and she's given me a pretty good right cross. Uh, which she thought was hilarious. Uh, I thought it hurt. And, uh, but y you just don't know because you can't see what's going on uh, uh, around you. To us as outsiders, it looks absurd that people would try uh, to jump or would run smack into a wall or would uh, run into a TV. But for them, it makes perfect sense to their brain in the moment because they're reacting to what they see. Our story today is a little bit like that. Now, there's some key differences. Every analogy falls apart at some point, but there's some key differences here. But our story today is a little bit like that. So let's read this story and learn a little bit uh, from, the, from the context, and then we'll pull back a little bit uh, and see how, how the, the truth of the story plays out for Elijah, for Elisha, for the New Testament, and even for us today. So 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 14. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, so this is post-chapter 5 where uh, Israel and Syria had a bit of a truce, now they're back at war a little bit, uh, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going, to, are going down there. And the king of Israel 
sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak even in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. And so he sent, the, sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So that's the context for the story. And what is happening is the king of Syria is kind of setting up shop over in Israel and doing some raids on these towns. The same one that took Naaman's slave girl. They're kind of upping the, uh, uh, the ante a little bit. They're doing some bigger raids, some bigger battles. And they're, they're going and setting up shop. And really the whole point and where they're setting up camp and ready to go do these kind of skirmishes is they're trying to lay a trap for Israel to walk into. But what happens is they go and they set up this camp. They go and they set up uh, these different places, and then Israel never shows up. They never show up for the fight. They're keen to their plan, and they're, they're kind of ratted out. And so the king of Syria says, I don't understand what's going on. We had a solid military plan here. We should be taking this. And then whenever they get a, a little bit closer, nobody shows up. And so he's, he's baffled, and he wants to know who's the spy. Who's the, who's the agent on the inside that's feeding the information to the king of Israel to protect him? What is going on here? We need to make sure that we, 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 we kind of seal up the leak here. We want to make sure that we don't have anybody on the inside giving this information out. But, the, but the, 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 the guys on the inside know there's no spies. There's no leak. There's no, nothing that is getting out. But Elisha seems to know every word that is spoken by the king of Syria right down to what he says in his bedroom. So this is a problem. You can't win a battle if the enemy knows your plan before you can execute it. So the king of Syria heads out to Elisha's uh, hometown where he's living, surrounds the city, and he's ready to put an end to this, this leak of military intelligence that Elisha seems to be the source of. That's where we get to verse 15. When the servant of the man, a servant of the man of God, so this is Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So make sure you get the scene here. It's underplayed a little bit in this verse. Uh, Elisha's servant wakes up, kind of slips on his house shoes, stumbles his way over to the coffee pot, stands there at the counter and checks Twitter and Facebook and just trying to get a feel for what's going on for the day, gets his, his pot of coffee, his cup of coffee, goes out on the patio, sits down, and looks up for the first time. And when he looks up, there is an army surrounding the city. He's completely surrounded by these guys, and they're all looking down on him and on Elisha's house. He looks in the back. It's, it, it, it's covered. He looks in the front. They're all around, chariots, horses, a full army surrounding him. This isn't Naaman coming for healing, which we saw last chapter. This is an army coming for a fight, or more precisely, just coming to take control. They weren't looking for a fight because they brought the whole army for one guy. 
And so his servant knows things are about to go south. He rushes in to wake Elisha and let him know of the impending danger. And here is Elisha's response that will serve as kind of the crux for our message this morning. He said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you'd have to imagine that the servant, that Elisha's servant has to be a bit confused. He's got to be a little bit confused because he just came from uh, out on the patio and he knows it's him and Elisha. There may have been what was called the sons of the prophets there with them. There's a story about that just, just before this. So they may have had 15 or 20 guys. They may have had a few guys, but not enough to mount a fight, not enough to actually uh, uh, start this, this fight uh, against an entire army. And so... Uh, uh, the, the, the servant's a little bit confused, like, Elisha, I get it, you are a prophet, you're the man of God, but this is probably not the right time to be talking trash. This is probably not the right time for you to be uh, running your, your mouth. I, I, I don't think you fully understand the severity of the situation that we are in, Elisha. I don't think you understand. But Elisha knows something that his servant doesn't. Better said, Elisha can see something that his servant can't. And it's what Elisha sees that gives him so much confidence in the face of something like an entire invading army. So 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, Elisha says this. Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes, the eyes of his servant, so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's servant saw the problem, a very, very big problem. What he did not see is that the size of the problem is relative to the size of the God for the solution. You see, Elisha's servant had no solution to an invading army. I mean, that makes sense. Elisha's servant has a perfectly normal reaction. He has no solution to an invading army coming to take, take uh, his master. He, he can't stop that. So his warning to Elisha makes total sense. Because he knows he can't stop it. He had no answers, no suggestions. All he had was fear and an understanding of the situation in front of him. Elisha, on the other hand, didn't see a problem at all. Elisha barely bats an eye. I'm not even sure he got up to look out the window at the armies that were coming. In fact, what Elisha saw was not a problem, but an opportunity. He saw an opportunity for a victory, an opportunity to teach his young, uh, his young servant, and an opportunity to trust in God and what God can do. Elisha's lack of concern wasn't born out of some misplaced arrogance about, I'm the man of God, all I got to do is snap my fingers and, and they'll be consumed. It's no big deal. This is not what drives Elisha's confidence. He knows he can't solve this predicament on his own either. He's in the same situation as the servant. And he's not even going to try. And for the moment here, I, I, I like how he begins this. He's not even trying to solve the problem. He's just using it as a teaching moment. He's just using it as a moment that's instructive for his servant. This text is honestly as simple as it gets. God, open our eyes to the reality that is all around us. Now, I'll be honest. 
there are few stories in the Bible that make my job as easy as this one. I don't really have to do a lot for this. Every one of you, as I'm telling this story about open my eyes to the reality of what's around us and how, God, you are actually there in the midst of all of our trials. The, the application points are so obvious that it's almost insulting for me to list them out. But, but my goodness, the opportunity that we have to apply this story to our lives comes across 10,000 times a day. Don't you see how easily this story transfers for us? We spend our lives focused on what we can see. We spend our lives focused on what others can see. And without fail, what we can see is our problems. Our very real, very serious problems. I don't want you to walk away from this sermon with this mentality where you hear me say, problems aren't really that big so long as you trust God. That is not what I'm saying at all. Elisha's problem is a very, very big problem. And so are ours. I don't want to minimize your fear or dismiss your struggle. What I want you to see is that whatever very real problem and struggle you may have, whatever fear you are facing this morning, whatever it is, it's okay to admit how big it is. It's okay to admit how difficult it is. It's okay to say, God, I've got no solutions for this. I can't solve this problem. But simply to say, God, I have no solutions for this, but I know that you do. And that you are bigger and stronger than whatever it is that I can see coming at me. And I know that sounds like a cliche, coffee mug thing kind of, say, kind of thing to say. And honestly, if you've heard me preach enough, you know that I tend to preach against the coffee mugs, not with the coffee mugs, right? But this one, it, it's true. The application is real. The problems that we face are only as big as, as, as the, 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 the relative size compared to the God that we serve. Elisha knows that he has nothing to fear because he can see what his servant cannot. Quickly, let's read how this story goes the next couple of verses, and it'll go just exactly as you would probably expect. Verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike his people with blindness. Or please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Now, if you keep on reading in there that uh, Elisha basically takes these chariots of fire and all these things that are around him, uh, and, and he says, God, here's what I need you to do, and he uses it to, 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 to bring the, uh, the, the, the leaders of the army and the king of Syria to, to kind of barter a truce just a little bit. Just like that, the battle where he was outnumbered and had no chance, the battle is won. And he uses this as an opportunity to kind of create uh, the truce between these two, uh, these two nations at war. All because he could see what others could not. My goodness, what I wouldn't give to have that kind of sight. To wake up in the morning and to be able to see the reality of what is around us. What I wouldn't give as a pastor to bestow upon you that kind of sight. That when we feel the most overwhelmed and the most scared is the moment when we need to see all that God is doing around us and for us. 
we spend our lives obsessed by what, we, by what can be seen. By what can be seen by us and by what can be seen by others. Now, depending on the way you're wired, one of those or the other probably has more influence on how you make decisions. But you, we, we spend our lives focused on the things that we can see. Think about it for just a second. Think about the text messages and the conversations that you have had this week with your friends, with your family members, with your, with your spouse, with your discipleship group. Think about the conversations that you have had. And I'm going to bet that almost all of those conversations center on the problems that we can see, the things that are in front of us, the fears that you hold, the worry about what others see whenever they see me. Almost all of our focus is drawn to what we can see. For most of us, I just described a normal day. You wake up focused on the task at hand, because after all, the task at hand has to get done. And then you make it through the day, and you just got to keep on going with what's right in front of you and what consumes our days and our nights and our hearts and our minds. It's just making it through the next thing that we see right in front of us. Focused on problems, nursing our fears, and putting on a show for others, hoping they don't notice how little we're managing the other two things. We get so caught up in the here and the now that we don't realize that we spend most of our lives utterly obsessed with things that don't matter. Or in the case of worry, things that don't even exist. When the reality is that the most important things and the things that will help, that will help our hearts the most, those things we don't even see. Those things go right by us. And we're just like Elisha's servant, no eyes to see what is happening around us. The reality of believing and seeing things that most of us don't quite see, this is how Elijah and Elisha were able to operate their ministries. This is how they did what they did. Elisha doesn't go up on Mount Carmel if he doesn't believe that there's something greater than the, the saturated wood and the, 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 the altar overflowing with water, right? He's got to know that there's something bigger and, and more, more real than the soaked wood, right? He's got to know that or he doesn't pray the way that he does. He doesn't do what he does. We all know wet wood won't light, but Elijah knows that when God decides to move, some wet wood is not the most important reality of the moment. It's the God who can rain fire. That's a far more significant reality than the first. Do you see how that works? We can see the reality of the wet wood, but there's something greater that Elijah could see that supersedes that, that's bigger than that, that's more powerful than that. Elijah doesn't confront a king if he believes that the kingdom he can see is the most important kingdom for him to build. No, Elijah sees the kingdom of God and sets forth to build the kingdom first and foremost. Elisha doesn't bring a boy back to life or bother with telling a general to go take a bath in a river that he believes is, is, is really just some, uh, some, some junky, useless river. What he tells them and what he does in those moments are the truer things. The true thing for Naaman in that moment is that the river will do nothing. 
The true thing for the widow in that moment is that what, whatever it is that, that Elisha does is really not going to be a whole lot because the truer thing is that her son is dead. All those things are true. Those are very real, very big problems. But Elisha realizes there's something bigger, something truer that supersedes all of those realities. Hear me this morning. Your problems are not the truest thing about you this morning. Your troubles and your sorrows are not the truest thing about you. You have, to, you have to make sure that you do not define yourself by your fears and your failings and your problems and start realizing that there are things more true than your greatest fears and your greatest failures. For so many of us, that is how we define ourselves. We define ourselves by all of our shortcomings. Sometimes that's just by what we see in the mirror. Sometimes that's just by what others say about us. And sometimes it's by very real problems and very real sins that we have committed. And we define ourselves by those things. But God is bigger and God is truer than all of those things. The devil is a liar. And he will do anything he can to make you believe that seeing is believing. And then he'll do everything he can to make sure that what you see is a lie. He'll turn your life into a fun house of mirrors and he'll do anything he has to just to make sure you don't see the truth. He'll give you all kinds of amusements and distractions just so long as you don't see the truth. He'll beat you down and break you just to make sure you don't ever look up and ask God to show you the reality of what he is doing all around. The other thing to notice in all of this is that, is that you, you can see things, when you, when you see things that others typically don't, it makes you do things that look very strange to them. I mean, go back to the, to the headset, when you put the headset on. Why is it that people jump into the TVs and jump into the walls and stumble to the ground and look like fools? It's because they see something that we don't. It's because for them, they see something that causes them to react in that way. And it makes them look ridiculous. Elijah looked ridiculous. The prophets of Baal mocked him in return. He looked ridiculous until the fire fell. Elisha looks ridiculous until Naaman shows up at his door and says, I'm healed. Elisha's servant thinks he's crazy until Elisha prays and opens his eyes to the reality of what's happening. Listen, if we open our eyes to the reality of what's going on around us at any time, you're going to live different. Do you know why? Because when you see new things, you act in a new way. You may look foolish to the watching world around you, but that's okay. That's part of the Christian life. When you see the world through spiritual eyes, it will force you to live a different life because you won't value the same things anymore. You won't be scared of the same things anymore. You won't build your life to pursue the same goals as everyone else. You'll just be different. And according to Scripture, that's a good thing. The ministries of Elijah and Elisha stood out against the backdrop of a nation and of kings that were not just 
falling away from Yahweh, that we're running away from Yahweh. And so it is with us. Our lives and our goals should stand out as different than the world around us because we just don't see the same things. Our reality is different. This isn't just the message of the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament as well. I could, have, I, I could quote a dozen scriptures here. I've got a few that I want to pull in. I could quote a dozen that communicate the same truth. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, what we can see, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not just against what we can see. There's a whole battle that's being waged all around us. Even as I stand here preaching this, I feel like I'm talking about the next season of like Stranger Things or something. It feels like science fiction that we're talking about. It doesn't feel real to us because we are so much like Elisha's servant. So lacking the spiritual eyes to see. But the Bible is clear that there are things about this world that we cannot see that are far more true than anything in front of us in our day in and day out life. Now listen, this is not a demon behind every bush type of thing. This is, not, uh, uh, the, this is just the simple reality that we can't just live life as though everything we see is the only thing that's there. In fact, according to Scripture, the truest things about this world and about ourselves aren't things that can be seen at all. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? Though our outer self is wasting away, that would be a reason to, to, to lose heart. And as uh, somebody who is uh, daily getting older, which I guess we are all daily getting older, but I feel it a, a little bit more at this point. Uh, as, I am, as I am daily feeling that reality, this is a good truth. As the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The outer things we see, they are wasting away. They'll be gone in a flash. But the most truest, the, the truest thing about me as someone who who is a follower of Christ and who's, uh, who has been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the truest thing about me is not that my body is wasting away, but that the Spirit is giving me new life. The work God is doing to renew me that, that, that you cannot see, that I cannot see, is far more real than what we can see happening on the outside. And this is really the message of Elijah, of, of Elijah, of Elisha, of the New Testament. It's really the message of the Bible. That seeing God through eyes of faith will radically alter our perspective, our goals, our values, and our worship. The, thing, the same thing that I said earlier is true. Our problems aren't the truest thing about us. It's critically important that we get that, that we understand that. 
We have to understand that, that our biggest problems are not even the ones that we can see themselves. According to the Bible, our biggest problem is not whatever it is that we see in front of us. It is our sin. But your sin, my sin, doesn't have to be what defines us. The beauty of the gospel is that, is that, is that our, uh, our sin, as big a problem as it is, has run up against a much bigger and a much more worthy solution. It is run up against God himself. And that is the greatest truth, that God has sent his son to die for our sins. And because of that, <clears throat> you don't have to be defined by your sin and your failure. That thing that feels so real to you, you don't have to be defined by that. Instead, you simply need to open your eyes and see with eyes of faith. It changes what we value. It changes what we pursue. It changes how we act. And it changes our outlook. I want to read one more verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 11 is the great hall of fame of faith. This is what we've been studying uh, with, our, with our men for, for basic training. It's a great hall of fame of faith where the writer tells of all these people who have lived these great lives of faith. Faith, the conviction of things unseen. And then Hebrews 12 gives us this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we close this morning, as we wrap up this series, I want to ask you, how different is it to run alone and go through life thinking that you are fighting your battles by yourself? Just you and whatever resistance you can muster. And I'm talking about the, the, the problems you feel when you wake up in the morning, and I'm talking about the weight of the problem of sin whenever you allow yourself to realize and to dwell upon what it is that you have done in your rebellion against God. Which, whatever you want to you think about, how different is it whenever you're fighting those battles by yourself, just you and your own resistance, versus the reality that you have an unseen army fighting with you and a cloud of witnesses witnesses urging you on to the finish line our unseen reality is all that we need to strive and to make it in the face of our biggest problems you can leave here today with the confidence that you have two at least two things in your corner and we can keep on going talking about how jesus says that he will never leave us and forsake us i'm just talking about these two unseen realities you have an army that God has established around you that can, can take on any battle that is before you, any problem you have before you, and you have a cloud of witnesses that is cheering you on, pushing you on, serving as an example to pull you along. How much does that change who you are in the way that you live your life? When you wake up, you realize there's something bigger going on than this little thing in front of me this big thing in front of me. Whatever it is that's in front of me, it doesn't have to consume me because I know that I have a God who says that he is for us. He is for me.
so long as we have eyes of faith. We find ourselves in Christ. That is the, the lesson of Hebrews, of Hebrews 11, of 2 Corinthians, of Elijah and Elisha. The confidence that we can have that we are not alone. And we don't have to go through this life alone. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning it is our confession that we are far too easily controlled, manipulated, distracted, broken, scared, worried, running from the armies that we see around us. That everywhere it it looks, it seems as though things are mounted against us. Father, my prayer is simple this morning for me, for everyone in this room, for everyone that is listening. Open our eyes. Help us to see that we are not alone. We never were alone. We never will be alone. That in the midst of the greatest trials, the worst moments, the scariest times. You are there with us, an army around us, fighting on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.